Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to the first GeoMob podcast of 2022. Um, It's great to be back and it's great to have you listening to us again. This morning, I'm joined by Ian Turton, who um, many of you will know. He's an open source developer. He's got a PhD from University of Edinburgh. He's taught geospatial science. He's a long-term contributor to the GeoTools library and to the GeoServer project. Um, He's also a colleague and friend of mine at Aston Technology, which I should just call out um, who support both of us in some of our endeavours. Alongside Ian, I've got um, Andrea Aim, who is another open source enthusiast with a Java background. He works for GeoSolutions in Italy and also works on the GeoServer project. So we've got two heavy-duty Java Java, not Gava, listen to me. We've got two heavy-duty Java geo-geeks on the podcast this morning. So welcome, Ian. Welcome, Andrea. Ian, introduce yourself briefly, just who you are and what you do. Um, Well, as you said, uh, currently I'm a senior geospatial consultant for Aston Technology. Uh, I work in their custom solutions group. Uh, So I provide geospatial support to organizations of UK and around the world, um, particularly with GeoServer um, and other Java-based uh, geospatial problems. Okay, and Andrea, what about you? Yeah, I'm uh, the GeoServer technical lead at GeoSolutions. I basically develop code for GeoServer, for GeoTools, for the associated uh, projects day in, day out, and offer consultancy and support to the GeoSolutions customers. And uh, in parallel, I also try to to keep the, the, the projects alive, also using my own spare time. Right. And that's a good lead into what we're going to talk about this morning, because you two guys... You're committed developers, you work in geotechnology, but you've got families. Of course you've got families, and you've got a life outside of geo, and yet you spend quite a lot of that time outside of your working days working on GeoServer and GeoTools and supporting the community. And for the last few years, you've also presented a talk at PhosphorG Um, which you've called The Secret Life of Open Source Developers. And that's sort of where I want to go with this this morning, is talking about the relationship between your private lives and your working lives and how the two intersect and how that may be a strength or a weakness of the open source model. So, Ian, how much time do you spend on open source contributions, both in the day and in the evening? Um, it varies. Um, it used to be probably 
as much as 10 or 12 hours a day. Um, these days I'm trying to be more disciplined about that sort of thing. So it's probably only eight or nine hours a day um, and less at weekends. And, I and less at weekends. I had a whole fortnight off over Christmas. Didn't do anything for anybody. It was really good. <laughs> Fantastic. What about you, Andrea? Um, it's like uh, nine hours a day during the, the work days. It's difficult to um, to tell apart uh, uh, the hours that I spend, which are not directly contributed to to the open source, because you know we do some consultancy, which is around the open source project, but does not directly contributes to the project. But I would guess that out of those nine hours, at least seven are spent on uh, activities that directly contribute to the project. And then during the weekend, it might be uh, one or two hours per day. It used to be more, but then uh, the pandemic, the family uh, needs and so on, uh, it got down to one or two hours a day during the weekend. So, so both of you are giving quite a lot of your personal time to open source projects and supporting the community. Um, what motivates you to do that? Why? Why don't you switch off at five or six o'clock in the evening? Um, yeah, it's... There's an XKCD cartoon about where somebody off screen is shouting, are you going to bed? And he's saying, uh, no, somebody's wrong on the internet. I have to fix it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I feel like some days. Um, in a lot of cases, yes, it's that I see somebody, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time on answering questions on GIS Stack Exchange these days. Um, it's one of my contributions. So you see people who are struggling to understand how the spatial works, why spatial is special. Um, they've fallen for uh, this argument that spatial isn't special and are now getting tripped up by it. Uh, and I just feel the need to to help them out fix this that's i mean i'm struggling here ian because um i massively appreciate what you and andrea do and at the same time why do you care so much andrea why do you care so much that you're willing to give up the weekend to help other people without being paid for it well is it actually me helping other people or is it actually uh, a motivation that comes from within myself? Um, you know, let's go back for a moment to motivation. Motivation to contribute to open source for me changed over time. At the beginning, it was, well, I'm using open source projects like Grass, for example, that was the first project I contributed to. And it seems to be just natural that I contribute back, like if I'm stumbling into a bug, if I'm stumbling into a documentation uh, issue, I can just go in and fix it. I mean, they gave me a full product. They gave me like 30 years worth of development. Why, why don't I give back? That seems to be just okay. natural, right? And, uh, and, and then uh, it came to, um, I need a, a library for my students. I was teaching at the university for them to uh, do 
part of the exam developing some GIS uh, algorithm or application. So I stumbled into GeoTools. It was not doing exactly what I needed, but it was close. And that's another powerful mechanism, you know, being almost there, but not quite there. And you, you go and fill the gap. So I contributed to that, and I found a community that was engaging, that was interesting to be to be in. So I, I stuck okay. around. I get that. I get that. Um, I think, and I'm not going to push this, but um, I think it's the, the, the bit that it really always makes me wonder why. And listen, I do this myself. I, you know, I don't write code, but I do contribute to the community in different ways. Um, and we give up a lot of our personal time. You know, we, we take time away from our families, from our wives, from our children um, to do this stuff um, because it's more than just um, a technology. It is a community that we have, we live in, we work in, and these are our friends, and uh, that's partly what motivates me, certainly, to give up personal time in this area, and I think probably for you and Ian. Um, so you must get pissed off at times. There must be things that bug you about the open source community. I know, Ian, um, when you spend time on Stack Exchange, that has to be a frustrating experience on occasions. Um, it is a bit, but as I'm a moderator, I can deal with people who are very frustrating by blocking them. Uh, <laughs> and I can close their questions and delete their questions if I don't like them. Um, so if you're not, I don't do that because you've asked a stupid question ever. Uh, it'll be because you asked your question in a rude way or in an unhelpful way um which does bug me sometimes um it's the people who just want to take and don't give back you know who've deliberately obfuscated the fact that they're clearly working for a company it's clearly a commercial product they're working on uh and yet they want us to give up our free time to help them out solving this problem um at least give us all of the information that you you were talking that, that that's relevant rather than hiding the key bits um which does bug me but mostly what bugs me is people who've taken a free product uh, and, and and then expect commercial level of support for free um um and that brings me actually that's a good point to mention there's a podcast that Ivan Sanchez um, pointed us at, um, which is called um, The Gift of It's Your Problem Now, um, and which talks about the fact that uh, we take free software, and when we take free software, we take it as is, and if they're bugs, they're our problem, not the problem of the person who wrote the software. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so that other people can read it. But it does feel that um, there is an expectation amongst people who use open source software that the people who develop it will fix their problems for them um, without them having any obligation to enter into a commercial relationship of any sort with the people who are fixing those problems. Would you agree with that? 
Yes. Very much. And uh, it's really, really wrong. You know, when we started contributing to, contributing to open source like 20 years ago, it was, everything was smaller. Uh, and uh, the relationship was much cleaner. So people are contributing code. The first attraction was other coders and then uh, high-end users and uh, open source enthusiasts that were trying to introduce open source in their companies. So we were more or less on the same page, all trying to share and grow the, the, the open source project in some way. And, and then over the years, open source become mainstream and uh, um, we got all these users that just tried to, to use open source without participating into it. And the license allows for it, it's fine. It's not fine when you come to me and demand support. That's not how it works. It used to be, and it still is, if we want to keep it sustainable, a matter of sharing resources. And we built something with it, and that something is shared with everybody else. But everybody else has to realize that it's either take it and use it as is, or step up and contribute to That's it. That's great. I, I like that as a, a, yeah, a philosophy. I was, I was looking through the slides that were of, of the talk we gave last year um, before we came on air, and uh, there's one that really struck me is, is that when people arrive, you know, come to the mailing list or usually on Twitter these days and say, why don't they test this feature <laughs> before they release it? Um, and I, to which my response is always, there is no they in community. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you depend on that feature, then you need to test it before release. Um, and particularly with GeoServer, we always provide release candidates beforehand. Um, and I don't think we ever get users reporting back. We only ever get users telling us about bugs after the final release. Um, <laughs> which is very annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've started to talk about how you sustain an open source community. And um, it occurred to me that both of you earn your livings and pay the mortgage because you work for companies that work in the open source environment, providing support and development services, um, to clients who are using the technology and clients who want the technology to be advanced in some way. Um, don't you find there's a conflict between giving free help on Stack Exchange or other forums in the evenings and the commercial services that your employers provide? And I'm not saying this critically. Uh, how do you address that or resolve that? Well, uh, what we do on the open source uh, mailing list and what we do on Stack Exchange is like the five minutes answer, right. right? So you have a problem, I point you to the documentation, I point you to an example which is maybe not documented, but it's already there. I spent literally five to 10 minutes time to give you something that is typically already out there, but maybe not easy to find or not clearly explained. It's kind of difficult to, to charge for that 
kind of service anyway. Right. When I do provide support instead, we are talking about bug fixes, we are talking about uh, uh, new functionality or assessment of a particular server installation, stuff that takes hours, if not days. So from that point of view, there is a clear separation. I cannot just stop everything and take a day to fix a bug for someone that's complaining on the mailing list. It's just not going to happen. Right. I, I wish people so are... That's how I divide fine. personally, the, the two lanes. It would be good if the people who use the software understood that. And I think, um, from my perspective, one of the things that... I won't say disturbs me, but it certainly um, is uncomfortable, is the idea that this is just free software and it, you know, there's no, there's no payment, there's no commitment, there's no engagement, it's just free software. And when it doesn't work, um, all of a sudden people put their hands up and say, oh my God. Um, so, you know, I think um, there's still a lot of education needs to go on um, for people who, directed at people who use free software, because um, they sort of miss the point of it, and uh, I'm not sure they fully understand the way that it's developed and how people make a living from developing free software. Um, Here, I'd like to quote Paul Ramsey. He once said, in open source, you get what everybody else paid for. Yep. Somebody paid for yeah. what yeah. you're getting. Actually, that's a great quote, Andrea. And he said that at, um, I remember it clearly because I was in the audience when he said that. Uh, and I've got a picture of the slide. He said, um, you get what you pay for. Yeah, he said, you get what, what everyone pays for. You get what you paid for. Everyone gets what you paid for. Um, and that was the sort of cycle of um, you get free software, but you contribute something back because you pay for a bit of it and everybody else benefits from that. Um, and that was sort of a great explanation of the model. But let's, let's just switch, move on slightly towards a question that I know we've talked about offline before, which is whether how sustainable is open source or how do we make it sustainable? Um, and given that we're talking about your secret lives, I'm going to ask a question that you can duck if you want, but I'm going to ask it. Have you ever felt burnt out, Andrea? Oh, yes. I, I have. And it's funny because I was this close to throw the towel and walk away the year that I go to the Soul Castle. <laughs> Before getting yeah. the award, of course, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that year was like a very dark moment for me in terms of uh, relationship with the open source community, because I was still trying to, you know, fix bugs in my spare time and trying to address uh, new functionality in my spare time. And, and I was just burning out because, as you said, it's not sustainable. And, and then I just started thinking, how was it uh, that, that I could do 
and I was happy about it in the first year of, of my open source in, uh, engagement. And then I realized, well, wait, it was because I wasn't trying to fix bugs for uh, strangers. I was mostly doing things for myself, uh -huh. which I was uh, sharing with everybody else. And since I got back to that model, I got back also the pleasure and reason to spend my own spare time uh, contributing to open source. I'm contributing to areas of GeoServer that get no love, like uh, clean up the code, uh, upgrading libraries, stuff that bugs me during the week, and that uh, I fix during the weekend. So I'm basically just going back to the scratch and okay, itch model. Great. And what about you, Ian? I think that's, yeah, very similar for me. Um, I don't think I've ever made a, I haven't particularly made a secret of the fact that, yes, I've been, I've been burned out. I've been de very depressed at times in the last few years. Um, I take a regular antidepressant now to, to deal with that. But also, again, like Andrea says, I've stepped back um, from what I do for GeoTools and GeoServer. Um, the previous years, I would spend evenings and weekends fixing bugs for people um, that weren't even, you know, weren't in my code or weren't something I felt responsible for. Uh, now, um, I've done more things like that I want to find out. So I wrote um, a contouring process last Christmas um, just because I'd always wanted to really know how contouring worked. Um, and I summer I did some work on producing uh, centerline for curved polygons for better labeling. Uh, again, just because I really wanted to see whether it could be done, uh, not because anybody was paying me to do it, not because it was necessary, it was just something I thought would make life makes makes would be fun to explore and would solve my problem, or would you know would be interesting. Um, and as I say, I spend more time now is doing support on, on um, Stack Exchange rather than, uh, as I say, leaping in and, and solving bugs. Now, like if you if you report a bug on Stack Exchange, now I will tell you that's a bug, you should report it and put up some resources to get it fixed, not I'll work over the weekend to fix it for you. Quite right, quite right. It wasn't working out for me. So, both of you, um, I think you both articulated that the, the motivation really well there because it's about fixing things that you want fixing or experimenting with something new rather than fixing a bug that's been lying there that uh, you don't care about but somebody else cares about. Um, going forward with open source, um, in terms of the, the sort of operational business model, do you think there needs to be change? Do you think people should be encouraged to pay or donate for using the software? Absolutely. I think it's very important. So we, we have a business model in GeoServer which revolves around support. And that's working. And that's addressing at least part of the needs of the community. It addresses uh, new developments. It addresses bug fixing. Of course, it means that the subset of uh, users that get support contracts are basically driving the project, right? Because they decide what we do and what we don't, mostly what we do. 
what uh, um, donations would address is the, that large area of activities where nobody would pay their own money directly for releases, security fixes, um, keeping the documentation up to date, reviewing pull requests, stuff that keeps the project alive on a day-to-day -day basis, and that simply is not a match for a support contract. People ask to use the support contract when they have a specific need. And these are day-to-day -day activities that need to be done in order to keep the project alive. So yes, we need money which is not targeted to a particular activity to cover these. And so people should be encouraged to donate. And I think, I think um, you, you summarized that beautifully, Andrea. And I think um, if we look at QGIS, um, they've certainly made some progress in that direction because they do have quite an active donations campaign and they have a lot of organizations that sponsor them where the money isn't linked to specific new features or bug fixes, but is actually about the infrastructure of the project, updating libraries that it depends on, um, all sorts of things like you've just described. And I think uh, that is a model that um, probably most open source projects need um, need in some way or another, and perhaps uh, it's a role for OSGO to come up with some kind of infrastructure that could um, enable that to be easier for people who use the software to make donations. Uh, well, actually, GeoServer has links for donation, and uh, we also uh, allow people to donate through mm -hmm. OSGO, where they can receive an invoice if they need to, but people are not using it. And in QJS, instead, they, they, they are getting a significant amount of funding through that channel. So we are doing something wrong, or they are doing something right. But partly, <laughs> the other problem is, and I bring this up because of neither Andrea or I were at the um, Program Steering Committee meeting yesterday, um, but I was reading the minutes this morning. Uh, and basically, we didn't spend the money we got last year. Uh, and one of the things is that we need more developers, more than more money. Um, GeoServer is in a particularly odd position there that we, as I say, we we either need need more developers who want who would who want to do things like technical debt, or we need to get better at organising the money we've got. Um, but we do have some money. Um, the problem we've had is spending it, partly because in the past we've normally used a you know a face-to-face -face meeting meet up for a week to do a code sprint. Uh, which obviously we haven't been able to do. Um, and it's much harder to do a code sprint virtually because you don't get the same feeling of togetherness and being in the same room, being able to actually discuss things with each other quickly and easily. Um, and that's one of our problems. But we do need to think about how we manage our long-term technical debt. And we can either go with the QGIS model or we could go with the GDAL model where they basically have hired Evan um, to manage their technical debt for them. Right. And I was... I, I think that the, there is another angle to this, so uh, another problem, if you want. 
you and me, we are all time open source contributors. Both of us have been contributing to open source yeah. for like 20 years or more. And uh, so we came from a dif uh, different background. We wanted open source to succeed and we pushed for it. And uh, we are open source developers. And, and I say that we don't work as open source developers. We are open source developers. That's part of our identity. The, over time, we got more and more contributors which are hired by companies to work on the project. They work as open source contributors, but they don't identify themselves <laughs> as open source yeah. contributors. Yeah. And that's a big difference when it comes to deciding what to do with your spare time. Okay. And that's a good point. I'm going to draw us, I'm not drawing us to a close, but I'm just conscious of time, guys. So um, we're talking the beginning of January 22, and in December of last year, uh, the Log4j um, saga erupted in the Java world. Um, and I thought we couldn't have this talk without discussing Log4j because I think it sort of, it leads us into, it sort of wraps up some of the issues of sustainability in open source and how the community, the Java community addressed that. So, um Ian, could you describe what the Log4j problem was? Um, basically, it was um, some old code that had been added to the uh, Log4j, which is a, a logging library that's widely used by the Java community um, because nobody wants to write their own logging library. Um, it doesn't make any sense to write your own logging library. Um, isn't that the essence of open source? Yes, that there's a library. Other people's contributions. Yeah, um, yeah. You don't waste your time doing things that somebody else has already done perfectly well. Uh, and at some point, uh, there was a bug or possibly a misconfigured feature. It's not, still not entirely clear which is which. Um, that allowed people to execute code on your on your server if you misconfigured log4j. Okay. Uh, that was the case in GeoServer, if in, uh, which was based on log4j1. Uh, and it required access to the log4j configuration files. The, the saga was about log4j2, which even if not misconfigured, allowed to perform a remote code execution by just crafting a request to the service, which was very, very uh, bad because, you know, you you, you you talk to any API that uses log4j2, craft the, the request uh, in a way that uh, triggers a JNDI lookup, and uh, boom, uh, if that request is logged, uh, you get a remote code execution. And the uh, well, the, the server does whatever the attacker wants. And how was, uh, so GeoServer wasn't impacted because it wasn't using the, um, the log4j2. Yes. Right. It was impacted only partially because we were using log4j1. And log4j1 could be made to perform a remote code execution while reading its own configuration file. So if you already had access to the file system where GeoServer was running, 
to its, its uh, data directory, then you could uh, doctor the contents of this configuration file so that you would execute code. But it meant that it, you already had access to the, to the server right. itself. So not uh, making a random request from so remote. We're sort of a month, six weeks after this thing sort of hit the news and it's all gone very quiet. Uh, does that mean that everybody's servers have been fixed? Has the problem gone away? No, I don't believe so. Okay. And Log4j2 has been on, already on the fourth uh, bug fix release for the fourth right. CVE. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to pick on them. Right now, they are under the spotlight. Everybody's looking at Log4j for more vulnerabilities in their pocket. Right. Um, but if we talk about Log4j, Log4j is it's not like a massive project with tens or hundreds of people working on it, is it? It's not at the same time. It's not the lone coder. It's not a lone coder. Okay. No, there's, um, there's a group of them, but there's not very many of them in that group, I think. Right. So I guess the question would be, um, they've been working, I reckon, round the clock and everything. Um, they must be exhausted now from this saga. Yes, I would expect so. Very much so. Right. So for the rest of us, for all of the tech businesses that use Log4j, whether it's Log4j1 or Log4j2, um, what could we do to support that community and to avoid another vulnerability in that library or in any of the other hundreds of libraries in that uh, tech developers use? Well, sponsor them so that they can spend more time doing, during uh, quality assurance and penetration testing and the like. Right. And, and maybe even just get some training because uh, most of the people that uh, contribute to open source projects, in, it, this is my, just my perception mind, they never got a, 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 a formal training on security. I certainly never did. No, we tend to make it up as we go along. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I can remember a time when there wasn't, you know, the word security wasn't even considered. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the internet certainly has made security much more of an issue for us, but uh, I think you're right. Uh, even experienced developers probably need to get training and updating um, in a way that they don't. Um, you know, experienced developers like you two guys who've been doing it for a long time are just expected to learn new things as you go along. And usually you do and it works, but it's maybe not the most um, robust process for um, absorbing new techniques and technology. Yes. Okay, so with that, I'm going to say it's time for us to finish. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Ian. It's time for you to go back to your family, Andrea, because I know you're on holiday today. So thank you very much for taking yep. a little bit of time out of your holiday. Ian, I think you're back at work now. So it's yeah. time for you to start hitting the keyboard and uh, earning a little bit of money for your employer so that it filters through into your wage packet. 
Both of you, thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. Goodbye and thank you for having us. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, you can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. Um, you can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. Um, you can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.